Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's easy to get lost in the latest true crime podcast. Or your favorite binge-worthy show. But what about your own story? That's the most important story of all, and therapy helps you write it. BetterHelp Therapy is 100% online and designed to be convenient and flexible enough to squeeze in between the next episode on your list. Get started today at BetterHelp.com slash pause for 10% off your first month. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Thomas Burke. He's a director, actor, editor, really jack of all film trades. Plus, he is a found footage encyclopedia, which is incredible. Um, <laughs> his latest feature, The Barbados Project, debuted earlier this year at the Unnamed Footage Festival Digital Edition. Thomas, hello! Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, thanks for joining for coming, us. For coming. No, joining really us. glad to be Whatever. here. <laughs> it's hard to think about the Barbados project being my last film, just because like, you know, as filmmakers, a lot of the times when we put out these films, you know, we're waiting like a year or so until like, you know, it gets through all those like uh, specs or, or channels, if you will. So that like, I've been working on so many since then that I almost forgot that that was like the last thing that had come out. <laughs> yeah, wait, how many projects are you working on right now before we dive into your horror history? Like, out of, do you even know the number? Not off the top of my hand. No. <laughs> Because, like, some are really minimal involvement. Like, I've been doing a lot of voice work in Finland lately, uh, working with a couple of filmmakers out there. What? Okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, 
they ran this film festival. I, I kind of met them through that channel, but uh, now like a lot of those people are working in the narrative film industry, which apparently Finland doesn't really have that big of a, of a movie hub filmmaker hub out there. So anyways, I really kind of like, like what they're doing out, out there. And so, yeah, so a couple of things aren't, I'm not like so heavily involved in. And so I guess that's kind of why it's hard to keep track sometimes. Yeah. Well, so, okay, let's talk about, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get introduced to horror? Good question. Well, my parents told me this, that, so I don't know, because I was way too young to remember, but when I like came home from the hospital, they said like being born that they, that the first movie I ever saw was, um, gosh, what's the, uh, what's the Anthony Hopkins movie from 92, that one best picture? Silence Uh, of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. It was just. Slipping yeah, you know, there, that, but that little, that little indie. <laughs> <Sounds of Lambs. laughs> the only horror film to win Best Picture at the Oscars, I think. Uh, or it wasn't even like so much classified as a horror film. Anyways, I kind of obviously started young. So my parents were always showing me like cool horror films. And um, I remember like Chucky scarred me as a kid. Uh, that, you know, Pennywise from It. And just like all of these films that would literally haunt me in my dreams. And I kind of found that like thrilling so i just that that's sort of i re- really the start of what got me into horror film cool wow. okay so you said your first horror film was silence of the lambs do you remember the first <laughs> like do you like what is the first horror movie like you really remember watching and like freaking you out <sighs> okay um you know honestly when i was a bit older because like it's it's hard especially like when you have a have learned to establish love the genre. It's hard to get like actually scared by the genre. I feel like, you know? Uh, so I don't know. The first time I ever really felt scared by something was when I was a little bit older, like watching, um, sinister for the first time. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Oh, interesting. Okay. And seeing that film and like, which also, you know, is like a found footage kind of hybrid sort of film. So, a lot of those archival VHS style sequences that they cut to, I just, you know, I, along with so many people, were just so freaked out by uh, the realism of, like, the, the realisticness of it all that, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of walked away from that one being scared of shit, really. Yeah. So that, yeah, that you know, that. that almost even got me into found footage a little bit. Oh, I was going to oh. ask you, like, I was curious if that kind of got you into found footage with that style. But then, yeah. so as a kid, like, did you grow up watching a lot of horror movies? It, it was a it was a happy balance of like everything okay. I'd say you know I I can admit that I haven't really even ever dove that much into classic horror or just classic movies in general. I've always so, more so been interested in like the more modern uh, films that come out. So I have seen a lot of classic horror, but that is been a result of like more so me watching those recently rather than like growing up with them as a kid okay a lot of like catching up to do i've 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 come to learn (laughs) so okay you said it was like a happy balance but what were the kind of movies you liked watching as a kid like what were there some like kind of horror leaning stuff that you liked to watch or you kind of you saw as a kid that really stuck with you i mean it's not really a horror film but i've seen like the movie jumanji a hundred times that was like one of my favorites you know i was like honestly i consider that kind of a horror movie it's yeah it's, it's fucking scary yeah they got animals just like stampeding out of like a, you know <laughs> a, a bookshelf or something like that and the stakes are yes. high in, in like every <laughs> scene of that movie <laughs> so you know stuff like that um 
you know, I'm trying to think what else. Like a lot of M Night Shyamalan movies, I I did watch as a kid. So I always thought the Sixth Sense and Signs were extra spooky. Oh, mm-hmm. Signs! Signs the- ruined my life as a child. Like yeah. I, aliens scared the shit out of me. So that movie was just like absolutely not. And you know what really also freaked me out too is like the the the, the movie The Ring, but it was like less so the movie itself and more so that creepy ass shot they show in like the first act of that of that uh you know corpse in the in the closet if you will oh, the corpse in the closet oh. yeah yeah man oh that 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 just that scarred me for sure yeah that that was that's that's a moment that's an indelible like horror moment for sure they kind of set themselves up like w- with they really set or sorry they really like set the tone with that movie because i've, I've said this before that like it's a really successful movie and not so much for like not so much for being like out of this world crazy because I mean the the whole crux or premise of the movie is you watch a movie in seven days and then you die in seven days. And then, so like that doesn't, you know, the end of the film that doesn't really change like over the course of the main objective, they try to survive the seven days and then what they die. Right. So there's nothing really that surprising with the film yet. It's just still so amazing. And a lot of people found that to be so, you know, that's almost restored my faith in like original, like, um, like non-original stories, like, you know, uh, sort of just kind of building on the suspense or the atmosphere, like the way that the ring did, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, for sure. And so, okay. You said that the like, sinister, you said was the first movie to really scare you, but yeah, do you still get scared of horror movies? Like, have you been scared <sighs> like that since? I get jump scared quite easily, you know, but like jump scared is just, it's a little bit different than like actually scared. And, you know, I inadvertently like watched this, like, you know, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of cinema out there that's the word snuff film is not the right, is not what I'm trying to get at here. But like, there's, there is a lot of like films with real like archival, like mixed footage, like, like faces of death, you know, like we like from like the seventies where they kind of like counterbalance that like real footage with simulated footage. And you almost, you almost don't know the difference or you don't know that fine line. So like I've seen a couple of those types of films that really like freak me out because it, some of it's real and you know, it's, and most of the time Uh you don't know what it is. So like Mm -hmm. only like extreme horror stuff kind of really freaks me out, but I don't, you know, I don't know why I still check it out, but uh, I'm acquainted with a few filmmakers that have like made a few of these things. So uh, I've I've even gotten a job offer to work uh, post production on one, and I go, is the horror like simulated, or is it all, or is it like some of it real? And when I found out it was, I I didn't take the job. Nine one one, nine one one. Oh, you gotta understand too that like the the film, like I don't know if you've heard of Charlotte's Net. That's like that's the movie I'm I'm referring to. Oh. And so you got like a filmmaker who's collecting footage from like the internet, right? Less so being the the cameraman, if you will, right? So like he's not, you know, he's not like committing these uh, sort of like capturing these like you know uh, morbid acts, if you will. He's more so collecting it and trying to prove a point of how like modern industry, modern entertainer, modern viewers and and moviegoers are um, interested in the weirdest, you know, most effed up shit today. It's kind of like his purpose in repackaging these, uh, these like me- this media, basically. But you know, okay. that's not really where yes. I. That's not really where I fly. So I haven't. 
That's wild. I'm just looking it up now. That's wild. Yeah. It's crazy. But, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I don't, internet's got too many scary things on it. No, thank you. Uh-uh. <laughs> that is very true. And, you know, besides that, though, like, I have gone down a pretty deep rabbit hole of, like, J- Japanese-style horror films, specifically, like, with found footage. And I have uh-huh. to say a couple of those, like, a couple of those really freaked me out because they, they, they really rely, like, at, at least Japanese style found footage. They rely pretty heavily on, like, very subtle sort of scares, like, not necessarily, you know, I, not necessarily like the entertaining horror where, you know, you, like, they, they're, they're really about trying to create these, like, spooky atmospheric moments. And so I've seen a lot of those films and, I really admire like the imagery that they have because they just like they always have the weirdest ghouls and goblins, man. Like it's it's fun it's fun stuff to watch, but it's also really creepy. Do you have some examples of that? Yeah, I'm curious. And, I'm because I'm not I'm not as familiar with um Asian found footage and that kind of aspect, sure. except for like Gonchium. Yeah, right, right. That that one is great. Is a great. Uh, I think it's Korean. Yeah, and I think they're remaking that too, which Ugh. you know would be a mistake. But that's neither here nor there. So like, uh, <laughs> so Koji Shireishi is probably like one of my favorites, but also like one of the most well-known, more prolific, like found footage uh, Japanese horror style filmmakers. Like he's made Naroi the Curse, uh, Occult, oh, mm-hmm. and A Record of Sweet Murder, which is like, it's crazy. That movie is shot in like 90% of it is shot in one continuous take. And they just, it's, it, they just kind of go all over with it. But uh Besides like Koji Shireishi, there are a couple directors that I, I either can't pronounce the name of or just like, you know, I only remember like a small part of it. But the director of Tokyo Videos of Horror, also known as Yami Duga, he's, wor- okay. he's dabbled in a lot of different found footage style franchises. And, you know, it's only really come to my attention recently how many Japanese found footage franchises there are. Like this one called... Honto Niata Naroi no video. They have like a hundred, over a hundred feature films that are all in this like anthology, like an anthology horror. Okay. So they kind of do these like tape, like we, in the US, we call them like tapes, like, you know, tape number one or tape number two when we watch these anthology films. So they kind of like more or less do the same thing. And they, uh, not only this one that I just referenced, but a lot of others do these like six or seven segments per feature and kind of put those out as like anthologies, but like they are so consistent with them that some of them have been around since the late nineties and are still being like shot today. So, you know, Ponto Niata is really good. Tokyo videos of horror. There's one called not found, which is called, which is found footage. There's demon files. And it's really hard to acquire these in the States I was just going to ask how yeah. uh, how readily available are these? You're so right, and you know I'm I'm a little obsessed with at least this style of film. So when I'm when I'm trying to watch it, there's there's really like like the only way I can find them is on this Japanese alternative like YouTube, which is called Billy Billy. Okay. So like I'll go on there, or sometimes Daily Motion, like some of these old mm. school like uh, streamer channels will will have like we'll have samples of these films, you know, otherwise you're going on discord and trying to find like, you know, people who are just going down the rabbit hole, trying to find these things. Um, so it is, it is very hard to find. Are you watching them without subtitles then? Sometimes. A lot, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I am. Yeah. Unfortunately. But it's still, I'm assuming that because it's, it, it's horror and everything that it, it still can be, uh, 
can still pull you in, even though you, you probably don't understand the language. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause like I work at found footage critics. So I try, I try to like, uh, what I do there basically is like adding entries to our found footage database. Mm. So, uh, anytime I stumble across a film, I try to like gather or collect its data and it, that sort of, that sort of like enforces me to do like my homework or my research on something because, you know, we have to, we have to provide these different criteria about a film. And so even if I don't get the subtitles to, to something that I'm like, you know, checking out, I always kind of like look, scour for critic reviews and, you know, most of the time they're in different languages. So I'll kind of like run it through a Google translator and either while I'm watching the film or after I watch a film, I'll sort of like scrub through professional reviews just to kind of like make sure I gathered the story correctly, you know? Yeah. yeah. Google translate is great, by the way. It, it, I, I watch a lot of Turkish horror too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Turkey does have actually a surprising amount of like found, I think Dabe has like a, is a found footage franchise in Turkey. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of those aren't found footage, but like the first one, if I'm not mistaken is, and then they had like the third or fourth one that totally was as well, which were yeah. both really good. So, okay, so you talked about how Sinister was a little bit of a bridge into found footage, but, like, what was the movie that really got you, like, okay, found footage, like, this is what I want to consume my every waking moment? (laughs) Okay, it's one of two, uh, because everybody, you know, everybody's first go-to answer is the Blair Witch Project, right? Usually, typically, naturally speaking. So, like, when I was in high school, uh, we were doing a little sleepover at a friend's house, and they... Had all, all my friends there had watched the Blair Witch Project before me, but they tricked oh. me into saying, like, this is real stuff, dude. You know, like, watch it, blah, blah, blah. So they all fall asleep, and I'm, like, the only one left awake watching oh, the thing. No. And it just, yeah, it freaked me out so bad because, like, you know, it, I was only, like, a soft, like, you know, 16 years old. So I, I could, I you know, and I was just gullible as all hell. So I totally believed it. And that movie really freaked me out. But... I did not know I wanted to be a filmmaker at 12. So I wouldn't necessarily say that like, that's what got me uh, invested in a found footage, you know, more so was like watching films like as above, so below and being able to see how they're able to take a macro budget and, and Mm. invest that into found footage filmmaking. That movie ended up being one of the like, greatest like achievements of cinema from a from a like a locations perspective because they're the first movie to ever get real access to film in the catacombs like everybody else mm-hmm. used to have to simulate those types of sequences if they're pretending to shoot there right but you know as above so below is like taking in cars and piano uh sets in, in or into that set which is like totally crazy to think but they got permission from the uh from the government to to, to ultimately do that. And so, you know, that movie is such a crazy journey, not only from a story line perspective, but just from like a, just from that, that, that physical journey slash approach, like the, through the whole like scenery and, um, you know, production design and atmosphere that, that movie really, really kind of piqued my interest about found footage because it was such a close up intimate perspective of being in the real catacombs, this sort of claustrophobic yet right. vast tunnel of space that like that to me opened up my eyes to like so much inspiration, you know? Hell yeah. Yeah. So Mary Beth has said that you are a found footage encyclopedia. What is like <laughs> your, your favorite found footage film? And then what is one that um, you don't think a lot of people have seen 
that you'd like to recommend? Cool. Okay. I like and that people questions. can find a little bit easier because yeah. Thomas, I know you got a lot of gems in the brain that you can find like illegally on the internet. <laughs> it's true. Okay. All right. Um, so the one that's going to be a little bit harder to find, uh, but is like, you know, still like, you know, you're able to find it in some places. It's just not on your typical Amazon for, for rent. But it's a movie from Mexico called uh, 1974, La Possession de Altier. Mary Beth's I talked just, about this one before. It's so phenomenal. Like, uh, besides it being shot in this sort of, uh, like, they shot it on an actual film camera. But besides the fact of it having that sort of sinister VHS stylized imagery, you know, it's just, they have, like, they have just such a powerful story that you go into it thinking it's one thing. Like you think it's a possession story. This husband is documenting his wife uh, who's just been, you know, they've been married for a little, they just been married and uh, she starts like acting really weird. So I don't remember if that's why he's documenting her, but he's ultimately documenting their day to day. And she's just getting weirder and weirder and more anomalies are starting to happen around the house. But like, it's really where they take all that, that I think is just so bonkers, crazy, amazingly good, because I just didn't see it coming. I don't think a lot of people will see where that movie ends up coming. It's very I, good. I have it right on my it, desk, because all of my found footage movies are on my desk with me, because I'm a psychopath. But yes, it, you can buy it from Cauldron it. Films. I was going to ask, so is that the Cauldron available. Films release? This is the Cauldron Wait. Films release, and it was the Collingwood story. So you can buy it, finally. I the Cauldron Films version, too. I'm showing now yeah. mine on the screen. I yeah, because I think, was it, I think it was Unnamed Footage Festival oh, wait, who yes. showed Possession, Dale Terror. That was where I saw it for the first time. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, I know they did They did show it. That's kind of like yeah. how it got on my radar. But, um, you know, I didn't become acquainted with the festival until last year or two. But they had like a really crappy version on YouTube for a while. And I initially watched it there. But then, yeah, when Cauldron Films announced that they were releasing like a hard copy version. I was definitely jumped at that pre-order right away. <laughs> it's just, it's just a really good film. And like that one was borderline scary for me. Like that one borderline actually yeah. scared me. Oh yeah. And again, it goes to some absolutely wild places. Like does not go where you think it's going to go. And it's incredible. And, and you know, to I'm sort of to answer your it. other question, which was like, what was, what would be like a more like mainstream stuff? I don't know if mainstream is the right word, but like something more generally, viewable that you know i would almost correlate this to even an earlier question which was like what are some movies that actually scare you i would say that the same director of as above so below his first found footage movie which is called the poughkeepsie tapes that movie really (laughs) freaked me out and i would also recommend that one too because like if you are a fan of found footage Odds are you've watched a couple like violent crime stories, you know, not not necessarily every found footage is your ghost in a haunted house type of scenario. You know, usually it's like a sociopathic killer who's like stalking his victims or, you know, basically just saying like there's so many violent crime stories riddled in the found footage genre that like the keepsy tapes just kind of feels like the most authentic and 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 really scary types of uh, violent crime stories I've come across. It's and it's like up. a mockumentary too, so it's it's really interesting. It's booked up. It's one of my favorites. I just bought a T-shirt from it because I'm crazy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Look, Thomas is my 
found footage bestie. We text about found footage a lot, so this is very exciting. But Thomas, I want to know like how you wanted to get into filmmaking because you watch found footage, you talk about it, you work for found footage critic, but like you are also heavily involved in the found footage filmmaking scene and you work on so many projects with directors like Isaac Rodriguez. So how did you get involved in the movie making side of all of this? Cool. So I've been, you know, I just turned 30, so I'm not that old, but I guess I'm also not that young either. So about 10 years ago, I got an opportunity to study filmmaking in France for 30 days. We were going to be joining like a skeleton crew oh, wow. and basically filming this documentary about, um, restoring churches like basically there's these uh, churches during like world war ii that all that got all destroyed from you know the warfare if you will that like we were basically kind of going in and filming interviews and and capturing coverages of these churches and whatnot to kind of say like our point being we want to preserve these historical uh landmarks and not bulldoze them down if you will so like we made this successful documentary it ended up, we ended up reaching our goal of like basically helping out these, you know, preserving these churches that I ended up wanting to like really take filmmaking seriously. Okay. Cause I was like, oh, cool. Here's like a prime example of film having an impact. Mm. Like I was able to kind of see it very quickly and very firsthand that I did jump into the ring pretty just quickly and was like, okay, I don't really know that much about filmmaking besides a quick crash course. So I, I studied and just kind of, you know, did my thing for like 10 years. And over that time, I got really invested in the found footage genre. So I made a short film uh, called Camping Fun, where uh, it is, is, is basically just a 13 minute short found footage. And uh, around the time I came to releasing that, the pandemic hit. And rather than, you know, me sort of like kind of figuring out like what the hell am I going to do? I more so like went back to my, my mental like uh bucket list where like these things that I wanted to achieve for myself, like, Oh, I wanted, I wanted to really learn sound mixing or sound design one day, mm. or I really wanted to kind of take editing a little bit farther into this direction. I really kind of hunkered down that year and just learned as much as I could about like the, the post-production technical processes that like when I put out camping fun, I was kind of like, what's next? And one thing I had never done before is like market a movie because I think a lot of times first come first time filmmakers will figure out how to make a movie, but they won't really spend too much time learning or attempting to sell or just like put out a movie, you know? Yeah. They'll just drop it on YouTube or try sending it to a couple festies and call it a day. But like, there's so much more to trying to get your film out there that I really learned that process too. And so I think it was more so like learning how to market oneself to that, that really kind of introduced me to a lot of other found footage filmmakers. It kind of got me into the um, found footage critic and POV horror world where then I met a lot of filmmakers and, and just working with like the distribution part of the, that company. But then like, um, you know, just, just like, just as a fan, really just like, finding a lot of other filmmakers that like were doing a lot of the same things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that it opened a lot of doors to just meeting so many people with like the same sort of interests. So it's not like I had sort of devoted myself to found footage filmmaking, but I have just worked on so many of them, but I, I really do love, you know, the genre. 
So speaking of, of found footage and the genre, can you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the Barbados Project and how you got involved with it? Sure. Okay. So it used the Barbados Project uh, was under original title called The Trident, The Land We Call Home. And it is the first sort of Barbadian creature feature to be shot entirely in the country of Barbados. And so... Um, I had heard about this movie for a while, and I think even at one point, like back in 2018, there was a copy of this movie on YouTube. Oh, wow. So okay. the production part of it actually was like recorded a, a pretty long time ago. And our distributor at POV Horror, which I'm uh, like, I'm an editor on, or like I do a lot of like quality checking for, you know, movies that kind of come through our queue line or whatever. Um, we came across the Barbados project and I had like, um, an assignment to basically just sort of do like one or two cleanup moments on the film and, and, and just, you know, get it to be released. And I, and I watched the film, like having already watched it the year or two before, but I watched it like with a different lens cap on, you know, knowing I was going to be putting a little bit of work into the post-production part of it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I saw so much potential with the movie that I wrote like a, I wrote this really long letter to, to my boss, my distributor. And I just, and I just kind of like told him how much I really admired the film and how much I think that, you know, if you give me a couple of months to work on this, that, you know, I could really kind of maybe help improve the film or, or at least just kind of help boost some of its, you know, flaws or, or whatever. So they kind of let me do that. They gave, they sort of gave me these reins to spend a lot of time with it in post-production and the other filmmaker, uh, the, the, the director, uh, the original director of the film had a lot of other uh, productions that he was shooting during this time. So, like, they sort of appointed me as a co-director to do some pickup sequences okay. and uh, basically kind of like man the whole uh, post-production department. So that's kind of how I got attached to the movie. And uh, I guess maybe I should have started with what the plot line is, but the plot line is basically about a group of journalists who are trying to uncover a conspiracy involving monsters that are allegedly roaming the island of Barbados. They've been told nothing, but there's all these um, videos surfacing online of people capturing um, different sized creatures and monsters. And it's kind of like they kind of band to get this group of journalists band together to um, disclose or uncover what's kind of going on behind the scenes. And there's this, you know, kind of evil corporation or evil mm -hmm. military government, you know, that sort of sector, uh, that's trying to, uh, keep this all, you know, hush, hush, if you will. So our movie kind of goes down this journey and, you know, we, we find out that these monsters have been, um, traveling from like parallel universes using portals and wormholes to gain entry into our universe. So it's a really trippy movie, you know, and we go into the past, present and future. And, it, you know, there's, there is certainly like a lot going on and we do show quite a few different kind of monsters throughout the movie. Yeah. So it's a kaiju picture. I was surprised at, at, uh, at the, at the, at the fact that there were these giant monsters in it. Cause you, I don't know, you don't see that a lot in like uh low budget, like found footage movies, you know, it's, 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 so I was really surprised yeah. that it has like this epic scope to it for a movie that, as you said, is, you know, shot entirely in Barbados and is, you know, a low budget film. Totally. And, you know, we even had like a, just a ton of extra footage that, we didn't really know what to do with, like, you know, uh, there were, there's a couple, you know, 
sly moments that we tried to like take, you know, just let's say a cool monster composition, figure out a way to implement it into the narrative. But a lot of these unused uh, monster moments are in the, are actually like laid out in our credit sequence Mm. where um, my friends at the Overlook Hour podcast, they also run the Unnamed Footage Festival. I basically uh, coordinated with those guys to say, Hey, I'm going to be emailing you a bunch of just, miscellaneous monster footage and i want you guys to just kind of like watch it and talk about it you know pretending like this is somebody sending you hypothetical real footage and we'll just go with that and so that was kind of a way for me to take that extra unused monster footage and be able to kind of really just you know go out with a bang if you will that's cool so cool like that's so fucking cool like uh, found footage is neat and so cool and collaborative and it's awesome when you know you're able to get involved in a project that you believe in like that's just and barbate like you know found footage in barbados a, a movie from barbados i feel like we don't really even see or talk about like that country is having a horror scene so it's really fucking cool that you were able to help get a movie like this out into the world even more so than it already was thank you yeah it is really cool and you know like we were just you just mentioned earlier, like filmmaker Isaac Rodriguez. I, you know, I've always looked up to him because he, he's, uh, he's w- works in Texas too, in the same state as me. So like, I've actually heard about his work for years because a lot of our stuff would play at the same festivals over, over the last five or six years. But I actually just got to work with him on this last movie, A Town Full of Ghosts. So like, that's just like, you know, another opportunity that I was like, man, you know, one day I'm like looking up to these guys, like, you know, cause Isaac's just, he's really a found footage encyclopedia too, cause mm. he's watched so many of them, but really he's, he's, he's made like a ton, he's almost like a so dozen. so many fucking movies, <laughs> like found footage movies. It's last yeah. radio call came out this year and so did a town full of ghosts. Like yeah. and back, almost back to back movies. Oh, and- and there's Mr. Creep, which he just finished principal photography with. It's of a, he did. it's a clown, yeah, it's a clown killer found footage movie, and uh, and I also acted in it too. I basically joined him for like two days on the set, but <laughs> it was it was really fun, also really creepy. Also, I'm just super excited to see it. <laughs> I remember your voice is in uh, a town full of ghosts. I heard, I was like, wait, is that Thomas's voice in a town full of ghosts? In a, like at the beginning, right? Ooh. I almost forget. Yes, I almost yeah, forget that. Your voice it, is in yeah, it. And I was like, I know that voice. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, a lot of horror movies will have uh, an opening scene where, you know, it just kind of sets the tone for the movie where you'll you'll follow a set of characters that may not be your protagonist or, you know, help you towards the central storyline, but just more so like, you know, those tone setters or the pacers. So like, I kind of... Uh, yeah, I joined that production too from just like doing some voice work, being like the cameraman behind the scenes, and we do this cool little death scene in the in the first in the in the opener. Hell oh, yeah. yeah! Okay, so we have chatted with you about we could talk about found footage forever, but this is not a found footage <laughs> podcast. Even though I should have a found footage podcast, but that's neither here nor there. Thomas, what movie are we talking about today that scarred you for life? Oh, okay, uh, Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. Oh my god. So uh, I'll read a quick synopsis of Edward Scissorhands, aka a movie that ruined a bunch of our lives. <laughs> um, 
A scientist played by Vincent Price built an animated human being, the gentle Edward, played by Johnny Depp. I know he's not a great person, but this is 1990, so I'm just acknowledging that off the bat now. The scientist dies before he can finish assembling Edward, though, leaving the young man with a freakish appearance accentuated by the scissor blades he has instead of hands. Loving suburban saleswoman Peg, Diane Wiest, discovers Edward and takes him home where he falls for Peg's teen daughter, played by Renona Wider. Ryder, Winona Ryder. <laughs> However, despite his kindness and artistic talent, Edward's hands make him an outcast. Oof. So, Thomas, why is this your Scarred for Life pick? Tell us your horror story, how old you were when you first saw this, what scared you the most about it, everything. Well, first, that was a good delivery on the synopsis. I like that. And, well, thank you so uh, much. <laughs> Copy and paste it off of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have a very... Uh, vivid recollection of watching this movie when I was a kid. I I grew up in New Jersey and I lived most of my life in Chicago before actually moving to Texas. But right when I was making this transition from New Jersey to to Chicago, um, you know, I guess my young sort of brain was just really like trying to take in like a whole new world, if you will. And I remember that first week I uh, was watching Edward Scissorhands at night. And uh, I think my parents had, they just like walked into the other room or were just kind of like letting me watch it by myself. And they told, you know, they, they told me that I basically like stormed out of the place crying and me and, and what, what ended up happening is that like, I guess when I was watching the third act, if we recall that moment when like uh, Edward, like he's, he's basically like kind of been shunned by the society in which he tried entering and he kind of, he kind of, you know, cowers back to his lair and then Winona Ryder kind of comes along and she's just, you know, she's just there trying to console him. But it's that, it's that ex-boyfriend that Ugh. just kind of like gets, back, you know, he Jim. follows her there and he takes, you know, he pulls out a gun and it's like the stakes are high as all hell at this, at, at, you know, um, he almost, just, he just got, you know, uh, exiled by the whole community. You know, his, his, his chance at love is, is disintegrating his, um, and then the boyfriend's coming in all, you know, guns blazing. And that scene where basically Johnny, like, or Johnny Depp's character pushes, uh, the boyfriend out the window. Like it was that moment that really like effed me up, man. Like, cause I, as a kid, I was just very vulnerable and like, and kind of like looked at that as, you know, as not being simulated. I was like, man, this is like, this looks this was real, you know, mm. that, that was like a real like window push to me or like a real death to me oh, that, it, you okay. know, I never really like watched the end of the movie to kind of, to kind of like get that sense of like, this is no, this is like a, you know, this is like a, a lighthearted, you know, uh, drama sort of like, you know, just family style film that, you know, I never really got that chance because I had just run out of the room before it got all happy again. And, you know, so anyways, that, that's kind of like the reason why it really scarred me. Wow. How old were you? Do you remember? Uh, I think, yeah, I was five, five or six. Oh, wow. Oh, oh yeah, wow. Okay. That'll do it. That will do it. So after you saw it, like, how, did it affect you after? Like, where did you have nightmares or you were just really upset in the moment and like, didn't want to watch it again kind of situation? Um, you know, I've had, I've had similar, I've had like similar ty- types of nightmares, but like those would be like, from different movies, you know, dreams are weird just because it's a whole hodgepodge of like everything kind of go like going on. Like, I, I think I would be in like those kinds of settings for, for like a nightmare or whatever, but 
I only remember a Chucky nightmare that, that really like haunted me as a child. And then like one with the Grinch <laughs> where the Grinch, <laughs> instead of him, <laughs> instead of him stealing toys, he was like stealing children basically. <laughs> wow. Wow. I remember those dreams like they were yesterday. <laughs> wow. That's wild. Well, Terry, I want to hear your Scarred for Life story about Edward Scissorhands, because you've been teasing me a little bit about this, So, and you sent me a TV spot, so I want to hear how your first experience with Edward Scissorhands, when you saw it. Okay, so... All right, so I'm going to... Listeners, I'm going to, inter- I'm going to in- insert uh, the, the TV spot so you can hear what I'm talking about. This Christmas... From the director of Beetlejuice. I just dared you. Can I bring show and tell on Monday? Laugh with Edward. Whoa, that's a handshake you got there, Ed. <laughs> Come on, let's get you sharpened up. Edward, um, would you? I'll be done. Edward Scissorhands. We don't want him roughing up on us now, do we? Rated PG-13. Now playing. Thomas, basically, and I know Mary Beth has heard it because I played it for her, but basically, so I was like nine years old when this came out. I remember seeing the TV spot for this movie, like clear as day in my mind, because it's um, it has a lot of Christmas music and it it plays up the comedy of it. There's it shows the scene of like of um, Edward kind of poking the the waterbed and him like you know being helpful. They're watering his, them washing off his 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 scissors, and it's like presenting it as a family film and it's saying like laugh with edward like it's it's like funny <laughs> this is lighthearted. this is so not serious at all um so that tv spot was in my mind because i played an awful lot and then i really wanted to see this but my parents would let me because they said it's about a man that pokes people <laughs> <laughs> sorry i love that and so my nine-year-old brain <gasps> had this image So you're looking at me as like a folk killer. <laughs> well, in my mind, I was like, this, this is juxtaposition of this really sweet, very family-friendly like TV spot that is happening that I'm seeing constantly. Just because at that time, it's like you you watch TV; these ads are like running constant loop, especially um, on kids stuff. And so, like, this was like being portrayed all the time. Where I'm having my parents tell me no, and I, I see his blades, and then my parents tell me no. He is walking <laughs> around, and they would do this this maneuver of him like <laughs> moving his hands forward, and I was like. I, it's it's so weird to me what what kind of gets in a kid's head because like at this point I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street and Nightmare on Elm Street, he has like you know blades yeah. for hands and the slashing people but there's something about this that gave me actual nightmares I remember as a kid being terrified of this weird ass Johnny Depp looking motherfucker just like coming in and moving his hands back and forth as if he's like gonna poke me and so i never saw this movie as a kid i didn't see this movie until probably late 90s early 2000s at some point so i was like in my you know late teens 19 or 20 around that time frame okay I, i see what you're saying because like man if you just look at his outfit without even like having any context to the movie gosh like 
even just the outfit is scary. Yeah, it's it's a weird juxtaposition of this trailer again presenting this very kishy Christmas happy family movie with like his weird ass outfit, these monstrous claws, like his the the design work on his his scissors is just phenomenal. But yeah, and so I I didn't see it until I was I don't know, 19 early 20s and when I saw it I was like just taken aback at how utterly beautiful the movie is and how like soul crushing it is. <laughs> Because it, it's it, a very it really like sad. unorthodox movie, like you know, it, you just don't see much. You don't see much like it. And it's funny you mentioned the music too, kind of like embracing that family style picture. And you know, I rewatched it recently just before coming on, just because I wanted to, you know, just pick up anything I might have missed. Because it really has been a while since I watched it, mm-hmm. and I do remember like. I've seen it a couple of times, obviously, but like I, I in my, in the later years, I really admired the score uh, and oh. the music in, in the film. But like rewatching it just the other day, I was like, man, this is this is one of my favorite soundtracks, despite the fact that it's literally just a bunch of oohs and ahs mixed together. This is I, I honestly I think this is Danny Elfman's one of his his greatest um, compositions, and um, I, I so I saw it the one time again when I was like late late 19 early 20s like that time frame and i hadn't seen it since then but i the moment i sat down to watch it i was just like taken back by how just majestic and and whimsical and just how beautiful this composition is like danny elfman puts out phenomenal music but like i do think this is one of his his best yeah certainly it's just very stirring it's like it's so fun it's so interesting too because his music so perfectly fits the Tim Burton aesthetic. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's because they've worked together on so many projects that they're so intrinsically linked in my brain. But there's just something about the way he uses like horns and the way he creates like sinister yet whimsical sounds and makes normal things seem scary. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible because I think that's a thing that Tim Burton does with a lot of his aesthetic is making things like I really, this time I watched it, really like kind of focused on this neighborhood that looks beautiful and perfect, but this music that he uses, especially when all the dads are pulling out of the driveway, it's kind of scary. Oh, like, yeah. The fear of this suburban kind of cookie cutter lifestyle, which I thought was also interesting, though, because it's so colorful. Like, I think when I think of like suburban representation in movies, it's usually the same manicured lawn, but it's not as colorful. And this representation is very colorful. Like the houses are pink and green and everyone is wearing bright colors. But I like that just because they have this bright aesthetic does not mean that they are like in any way like enlightened about like the world or anything, but they just, it it creates this interesting contrast Mm -hmm. Get Edward, who's in all black and his leather, which we need to talk about his leather outfit. It sets this really interesting visual contrast in your brain that you're like, oh, okay. So the colors, like, you know, bright colors are happy. But here we're playing more with that expectation of bright, colorful, pastel vibes, basically. Juxtaposed with the gothic castle up on the hill. Like, you know, it's like... Oh, okay. There's a giant, beautiful manicured lawns, colorful houses, and then a fucking castle on a hill. (laughs) Incredible. Like a hammer horror movie. Mm. Just a giant dilapidated castle out of nowhere with giant gates and full of 
dust and cobwebs and a man with and, scissors for hands. And you know, let's not forget to the um like the their bust style like lawn uh art mm. art canvases, you know, like he takes all the grass and like and like will cut them into like beautiful looking like bust sculptures. Uh like those are creepy as too because they're faceless and they're uh you know they're just vague and ambiguous. It's really they're, weird, but still, it's, it's still funny because cool. they're creepy, but also like they give personality to everything. Like finally, yeah. there's like an individuality to everything because he's making these creations for everybody, so they're creepy. Like Pudona Riders, like this is fucking weird. <laughs> like I don't like all of these weird things. Yeah, it shows that his character has a lot of empathy. You know, I, I even yes. I, I texted you a picture when I watched the movie, and I was like, yes. uh, I was like, man, look at this little insert shot that they just have because it's like. It's like a boy who's born without eyes, and it's just like it's a creepy little news clipping photo that they just panned across when Winona Ryder's like uh, in, like investigating the the land or the the house, and like it's just a subtle moment. But I was like, man, there's even just creepy backstory lore to like this film. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, it, what's a little little factoid is that I'm always curious when you see like such a specific aesthetic in terms of like a, a housing area they apparently went to tampa bay the tampa bay area of florida and painted the houses these pastel I colors was wondering that. oh I was no wondering. way yeah the oh. uh, production designer the production designer bo welch said that they found a kind of generic plain wrap sub- suburb which we made even more characterless by painting all the houses in faded pastels wow. and reducing the window sizes to make it a look a little bit more paranoid so they actually changed the houses in the sub- in the suburb but i'm curious <laughs> did they paint it back when they were done or how did they what what did they do is there like a little weird ass <laughs> suburb outside of tampa that is literally like you know, that's a good question. Edward Scissorhands. And I, noticed that. I noticed how interesting that was too. Like, because I, I, I thought to myself, I go, man, this looks too good to be just, you know, some sort of green screen backdrop right. or whatever. I was like, this has got to be all practical. Yeah. And then, um, so like, Wild. they apparently made uh, the facade of the Gothic mansion and they, they kind of just placed it there. Um, and then they filmed the interior shots on like a, a sound stage. But, it's so weird because it feels like it doesn't feel real. It feels like it is literally like someone, you know, they, a lot of times, particularly in a lot of Hollywood movies, they would have like an area that was like fenced off from everywhere that they would, you know, and this feels like a set. It doesn't feel like a real place. And I, I think it kind of gives that, that feeling of the artificial nature of the suburbia that's, that's hiding kind of a rotten nature underneath. It's like a liminal space. It feels Mm. like a liminal space, especially like, when they go to like, it's weird because when they go to like the shopping center where the the barber shop is, it doesn't feel as much like that. But when you're at where the houses are, the neighborhood, it doesn't feel real. Mm-hmm. Like something about it feels very wrong. To and especially this time watching it, I was like, ugh, something just feels off. And maybe because I already knew it was coming, but it just the vibe is so bizarre and in a in a good way. But it, mm-hmm. it's like this very bizarre vibe that. Burton strikes with this movie. It kind of sets itself up for that, um, you know, Grinch who stole Christmas or Christmas or like Lemony Snicket sort of like style story where you got like a person or protagonist who's just shunned out from the rest of society, but still lives in, you know, just on the outskirts of society. And, you know, for, for this coming out, what in the, in the nineties, I think, or yeah, early nineties. Yeah. That's just, you know, we didn't really see those kinds of films coming out during that time. So, you know, even though this is a certain 
stylized sort of like narrative it's i think it was like kind of one of the first of its kind to come out if i'm not mistaken yeah and what what i found really interesting on on this rewatch too is the the kind of bored housewife trope where it's like all of these women uh you know they're stay-at-home moms kind of and some of them don't have kids so they're just kind of kept women almost and they are so bored that they're looking for any kind of thing that is going to happen that they can you know do their little call circles and go stand on the corner. Yep, I'll meet you at the corner. I'll meet you at the corner. And so then they, they all of a sudden, you know, the rumor builds just because Peg has someone in the car with her and they're like, who is it? Yeah. Who is this person in the car with them? And everyone has to know. And so then they all kind of congregate outside of Peg's house until it's nighttime and the, the husbands arrive and then all, they all just sort of like disperse like cockroaches back to their homes. It's such a weird image of like everyone coming home at the same time, everyone dispersing like oh well the men folk are home we gotta go and then the next morning the men folk all leaving at the same time it's such a i don't know there's yeah. i think there's a slight like uh social uh kind of um discussion going on there yeah it's certainly i think certainly so it kind of insinuates that these people have never really left their small town to gain like a like a somewhat of a world perspective you know it, it feels almost feels almost culty in a way mm-hmm. where like you know just they just never leave their town. They follow these like rules or guidelines to, you know, whether, you know, it's, it's not, it's not ever said or, or insinuated, but like, you know, maybe there's rules to what color house you're, it has to be painted right. or, you know, just like kind of like thinking to why is this, why is this hermit town so weird? You know, it kind of, it just makes you wonder. Yeah. Well, and watching it this time, I was able to kind of put to words, a lot of how I feel about this movie. So I saw this movie one time when I was younger and never have watched it again because this movie upset me so much and made me so sad and so emotional that like I will not, I like didn't want to watch it again. It was like too much for my brain because Edward to me is like a really sad fucking character. And I saw a lot of myself and Edward and I was watching it as a kid because like Edward is coming in and he's like an object that everyone's like ooing and eyeing over, but he's still weird. And I felt like that a lot in my family, like where I think there was a part of me, this is going to sound really fucked up, but like I was one of the only, I was the only girl and I was like, I like school. So I was kind of looked at as like, oh, that's the smart girl in the family. And she's a, like a fun thing to look at, like look at. And they weren't mean, but like that's, I'm reducing it to that, but it felt Like, there was something about me that people liked because I, like, fit in a certain box, but I myself did not. Like, I got bullied a lot. I didn't feel like I fit in. I always felt like the weird kid. And so something about Edward really spoke to me in terms of, like, it's not feeling like you belong, but people still looking to you for something that you can give them. And that breaks my fucking heart with him because this, this, this kid how old is he um <laughs> okay that's another question i have i want to talk i definitely want to dig into after you, you finish your story so it was just like this him being ogled and ood and odd over and then everyone turning on him so fucking mm-hmm. quick when he made one mistake and like this is getting emotional and i apologize this like i see something in kind of my trajectory as an adult where like i was kind of I was treated like a golden child by my family. And when I, cha- when I got her getting tattoos and piercings and decided to do my own career path, that wasn't necessarily what aligned with them. They completely stopped like asking me about my work and I wasn't as interesting to my family anymore, which is fucked up. 
and not good. So, like, watching this movie now, I was like, Jesus Christ, like, this feel, like, I feel kind of like Edward Scissorhands, which I know sounds silly, but, like, he so desperately just wants to be taken care of or, like, acknowledged and treated like a normal person, but he really is just something to be ogled at and something, so a thing to deliver a service or a the feeling or something. The commodification of weirdness, right? Yes. Like, and what really stuck out to me again is, like, he puts, they put him in the dad's suit, Alan Arkin, Alan Arkin, Alan Arkin's Channel suit. Christopher, for Christopher Walken in this role for yes. me. <laughs> but they put him in the suit to make him look like one of them, but he's so obviously, like, his hair is so crazy, he's got the scissor hands, so it's like this trying to mask and I think it also comes down to my queerness. And I know that we're, mm-hmm. I know, Terry, you put something in our notes about queerness and how, like, Edward is such an incredible stand-in for both representations of queerness and how you feel trying to fit in. But also I read a really fascinating interpretation of him representing um, high-functioning autism mm-hmm. and not being able to, like, you know, does, don't you don't fully understand social cues or you take things pretty literally. Like there's a lot going on with Edward where you just the outsider and you feel for him and what he wants to be. But then he becomes like what fucked me up at the end is when he becomes the monster that he's been trying to avoid becoming. And yeah. he becomes a monster, but he's trying to protect. Like, you know, it's like it's not like he's evil. He's just like, I'm fucking done with you treating me like this and trying you just threw the love of my life down and tried to hurt her. Like, I fuck you. Like, it wasn't even an accident. He, like, very purposely is like, nope, fuck you. And that also freaked me out. Like, whoa. Like, what does that mean that yeah. you can be capable of when you're pushed like that? And I think I didn't really know how to word it in my small child brain when I saw it, mm-hmm. but I think it was all percolating in terms of, like, I feel different. I don't know why I feel different, but am I going to snap someday and then have to be alone? because of my difference that's a good point it generates so much catharsis it does so much catharsis building but like i was gonna share that i thought like one of the most frustrating scenes for me was uh it's a really it's a really subtle moment but it's like it's when edward's getting talked to by police and they're basically just like him and the family are the police and the family are just trying to like teach him morality they're trying to basically say like this is what's right this is what's wrong they're trying to like give him these scenarios like what would you do if you find money on the ground would you give it to your loved ones or would you you know return it to the police and so like they're trying to teach him this lesson uh by like and and, you know and they're having this family fight about it by like some are just trying to be like no edward that's a good answer but like they're getting shut out by being like no edward like you're wrong like your moral compass is off cue and it's like you know who are they to kind of sort of tell him what's right and what's wrong uh where like you know his heart is on his sleeve and Mm -hmm. he's really kind of doing everything the right way but he's being told that he's not and i thought that was like you know really frustrating yeah i even took a note down because bill says we're not talking nice we're talking right and wrong because uh yeah. you know kim try to tries to stick up for him saying like well maybe you know it would be nice if he gave the the money to his loved ones because that shows you know that he cares and and the the idea from bill is that there is right and there is wrong there is the suburb and there is the house on the hill there is us and there is them like it's such a binary way of thinking about things that just sort of heightens that that feeling of isolation for this character who's really trying to understand how to fit in with the society that doesn't really care about him the only thing they care about is what he can do for them and there's you know we were talking a little bit earlier about empathy and there's a line in here that just really like 
hit me with with Peg because Peg seems like a really you know caring person, but then there's the line where she talks to to Kim and Kim you know finally sees him for the first time and freaks out. It's a really funny scene, but then. Peg says he can't help the way he is. Have a little sympathy. And I think this idea between sympathy and empathy is such a interesting kind of distinction here because sympathy impl- implies, especially the way she says it, implies like pity him because he's not like us. And so there's yeah. like this almost even with Peg, who comes across as this very caring person that's trying to do stuff, comes is actually doing things because she pities him as opposed to wants to understand him. And I feel that that is like something that happens a lot in this movie with, with all of the characters that just see him as pity and want to fix him. There's that line when he's on television where they're like, you know, you know, if you could get, if you could have real hands, would you? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, but then that would, you wouldn't be special. And all they can see is this kind of commodification of what he can do for society, for this, this little suburb, as opposed to allowing him be himself and be who he wants to be. That's a good point. Yeah. You really just don't get more fish out of water than a man who's born with scissors for hands. (laughs) Right. And, (laughs) and leather. (laughs) And le- but like, and what's even more, and like again, that really speaks to how I think I'm. I I'm not on. I don't. I'm not on the autism spectrum. But like the way I've heard people talk about people that are neurodivergent that have autism or some like or some kind of like a disability of some sort, they like have some sympathy. They can't help it, but they don't have the empathy. Like don't, like instead of treating them like people, they see them as something different than a person, which is. Mm-hmm incredibly harmful ableist and terrible but i think that still happens today the way a lot of society treats anyone with a disability it does i I, I get excited i get excited when i see these types of stories being told in film because like they you know viewers are smart enough for themselves to you know understand a point if you will that like it is nice to kind of see films like this because then it just it helps you just gain that maybe the perspective you would have otherwise had a preconceived notion not for or or anything like that so you know edward scissorhands or just so many of these other like like melancholic dramas that really kind of like uh showcase a fish out of water just somebody who's completely different from the rest of society you know those i always those those important those stories are not only important but they're just you know they're they're really like they really pull at the heartstrings yeah what I like about this conversation is that we're kind of talking about the different ways that we can view Edward. And I think it's because the character of Edward comes from a very authentic place. Um, the genesis of it came from when Tim Burton was a teenager and he had drawn this thin, solemn man with long, sharp blades for fingers oh. and was talking about how it reflected his feelings of isolation and being unable to communicate with people around him in suburban Bur- Burbank. And he, there's a quote saying, I get the feeling people just got this urge to want to leave me alone for some reason. I don't know exactly why. And so there's this idea of not fitting in with society. And I think that uh, it makes it, it comes from such an authentic place because it's, it's born from, from his own experiences that it's, I think it, for a lot of outsiders or people that are, have been othered by society for various reasons, whether it's queer, whether it's being autistic or whether, you know, whatever the case may be, I think we can all sort of see ourselves in that character and sort of see our, our, um, trauma represented in that character. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a powerful movie. I remember when I first watched it finally, as an adult, it just really devastated me because I was kind of, I was, I was still in the closet at that point 
And I just, it just reminded me that like how lonely it can be because like the, you know, he tries to find love and he can't have her and he can't have that love. And he is forced to kind of go back into the closet by the end of the movie where the, you know, everyone's okay. As long as they don't have to think about him, his weirdness was okay. As long as it's a commodity, I mean, commodity that they could, you know, utilize. But the moment that he became too weird or it was like, Oh, his true colors are showing maybe, or, Oh, there is some kind of otherness to him that we can't ignore. Then it becomes like, Okay. We're going to know that you exist at some point, but we don't ever want to see you. And so, like, I think for, like, a, from a queer perspective, and there was this article um, that I posted last year on my site from Angel Melanson, who now works for Fangoria, and she was talking about how this movie, how she always considered herself to be Edward and how, how she had scissors for hands and that she was afraid she was going to live a life of a loneliness as a lesbian that she couldn't love the person that she loved. And so there's like so much of like heartache that comes in this character that I think depending on where you come from in life, you can still see yourself in that character. And I think that's really powerful. That's actually, that's so interesting that that's like more or less how Tim Burton came up with the idea. You mm -hmm. know, it just, it just kind of proves the point at like, you know, there's, there's this, there's this preconceived notion that like some of the best stories uh, are the ones that either are relevant in, you know, society, like the stories that are relevant to society or the current events, or conversely, like ones that, um, you know, build from experience or memories. And like, you know, it just, it just kind of proves how effective this movie is. Cause I don't think, you know, it's one of those like really high rated films and, and really, you know, well, uh, just received and talked about movies that like, you know, I'm not surprised that that's how this movie got conceived, but like, it's still just, that's such a, such a really cool fact because it just more or less proves its point for telling like a really meaningful, authentic story. Yeah. Oh, so I do have a couple weird questions though. One, how old is he? <laughs> yeah. Right. Because Man, maybe like in his twenties or I don't know. Cause like there's colleagues. So when like they finally, like when, when, you know, in the, in the opening or whatever, you got Vincent Price and, you know, the, the house looks, you know, kind of more newish and, and just whatever. But, but then by the time we get our, our main protagonist, like journeying through this, this mansion, you know, we got all the cobwebs like mm -hmm. built up. It almost looks like it's been untouched for, you know, 50 to a hundred years, but I, I don't know, like that, that's kind of where I get confused as to how, how old he is because, you know, he was probably in his twenties or early thirties, maybe when he was like, you know, cast the role, but you know, maybe he's only portraying like his twenties because he, he is still so young. And, you know, even if you were raised without an education, like there is some sort of, uh, you know, wisdom that comes with age. So that's why I was thinking he's maybe younger. So this also leads to my question. Is he human? Because I always watching this movie thought of him as like a mortal, like he didn't age. And I don't know mm. why, but I think cause at the end with like Winona yeah. Ryder and her old makeup, old, old woman makeup and, I assume that he just like is living forever and there's something about point. him that isn't particularly human because Vincent Price in one of his last on-screen roles, always playing him as fucking self, I swear to God, this man, but like he makes him. So what does that mean? Like, I don't. Well, yeah. And you, you just brought up the point that Winona Ryder's character is like really old by the end of it. So like. We either got Edward Scissorhands up there in the castle being 100 or, you know, but yeah, maybe you're right. I think you have a good point there. Well, because then I couldn't stop thinking about the mechanics of his hands. Like, okay, 
so are they connected to nerve endings? Like, I got like really into like, are they connected to nerve endings or is he mechanical? What did also, he eat? We don't. Well, he eats, but like you don't see any of his no, skin. When like, he was his, in his, his castle. What did uh, he that's eat? also what I thought. Bugs, <laughs> spider webs. Well, like it's just like I have so many like thoughts about him as an entity rather than a person and that not and like that sounds terrible because it others him more than he already is because i think in this movie like he already is such an other and he looks human but i think there is something about him that isn't quite human because he's he's made we don't see any of his skin except for his head so like what is going on under this very elaborate like leather outfit like very okay. leather setup like it's how stinky is leather. that leather outfit? Stank. Yeah. Stank. That man has never taken a shower. How the fuck is he going to wash his hair? How does he take it off? It's so skin tight onto his body. It's like it's glued on there. So that's the thing. Like, could he be like some kind of cyborg android creature? Again, no, I don't have yeah, that, that to back that, that could be where they were. That could be an intention of, of Burton's. I mean, like, we watch a lot of movies where we hear about these, like, um, or like I don't know, was it was it Cronenberg that just put out this movie where it was like organisms, uh, like artificial organisms, like integrating with human consciousness and like uh, they're being like that. It's like, crap. The future wasn't really. It was like human biology morphing more than anything else, more than like things morphing together. I see, but there was like there was that there was that like hierarchical system where like the people who were one kind of like specialness were like were seen as like great you know greater than the other or like being yeah. more um more special or more powerful so like you know a lot of the, we see like s- similar styles of those stories and it just begs the question like what uh you know what is human consciousness like you know if we take art if we take you know cyborg hands and attach them to you know maybe you know again we're just assuming like maybe behind the scenes vincent price's character was meant to try to invent like the heart and so maybe mm-hmm. like you know he's attaching these other these other things to it by like not really showcase like that would have been a cool little that would have been a cool little like story drop if like we knew maybe he was just trying to like build consciousness or build like a you know a, a real heart to something like that me that's kind of where my head goes is like he did mm-hmm. try to like make the first human and you're right maybe he is sort of immortal or like supernatural in some kind of way you know but like maybe just like so many times in cinema we're we're kind of seeing that from like an antagonistic point of view that like hardly do we ever see our protagonist kind of being raised that way yeah yeah because I, I just kept thinking that either Either it's really inappropriate that he is in love with um, a 17-year-old or it's inappropriate that the woman is seducing him because he is, you know, a 17-year-old's age. It's like either one of these things, one or the other is is really inappropriate depending on how old <laughs> this, this character really is. Johnny Depp is oh, 27 oh, no. at the time, by the way. Lose-lose situation here in terms of age <laughs> and relationships. Yeah. What if he's older than everybody? What if he's like older than the hills and he just like has lived up there forever? He's like God's rejected creature living in the I'll attic. Buy that for a dollar. I'll do it. <laughs> this movie fucks me up, guys. Oh my god. Uh, anyway, scarred it scarred me for life. <laughs> well, and like I just think that's something that I also thought about a lot was how Edward is such an interesting figure of rejecting patriarchy. Like he is mm-hmm. a male figure, but he is constantly associated with women. Like he is mm-hmm. always cutting the women's hair. He's taking care and like, you know, and then he's t- cutting women's hair and he's grooming the dogs. But then he's also sh- like 
stumbling into the male side of things with trimming the gardens and like doing the kind of maintenance of the of the lawn being the can opener being like yeah like he becomes this and he like he shish kebabs like he puts all the vegetables like he's the grill dad with all the shish kebabs on his fingers and then we have the boyfriend um jim that is jim jim the boyfriend who is like the representation of toxic masculinity. Mm. Like he's blonde, he's got the cheerleader girlfriend, he's giant and buff and a shitlord. And then you have Edward, who is this complete like alien figure in this world where he doesn't, he has no concept of like patriarchy of these gender roles. He just kind of stumbles into things and does his own yeah. thing and is threatening the societal order. And I think, and again, he, like Jim is threatened. Be- again, it would be more literally because of. His, his like kind of thing for Kim and on Kim's slowly growing thing for Edward, but he is this threat in a way. And again, like he, and he's useful, but then when he's no longer useful, he becomes a threat to everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's like this very interesting way of seeing him as his like a threat to patriarchy and heteronormativity going back again to the queerness in this like queer reading of this film. You're right that Edward doesn't notice that because like right before the boyfriend comes in guns blazing at the end, like, he's having that uh, intimate conversation with Winona Ryder and like, he's asking if the boyfriend's okay, you know, like somebody who's like, you know, just bullying him and ridiculing him. And it's just like, and you know, he's and Edward's just wondering if like that guy's okay, you know, like yeah. his biggest enemy. Also what great casting for Jim with Anthony Michael Hall, who, you know, yeah, at this point God, is known this... for 16 candles, you know, the breakfast club, weird science, like being a nerd and that kind of geeky character and to go from that to being the the jock that is like everything that he was in his character grow in like the 80s it's such a such great casting yeah he pulled you know he pulled off that new halloween movie really well too because i think yeah. that was like the, one of the last things he came out in <laughs> evil dies tonight evil dies tonight <laughs> but it really is wild that they're the same person i always forget that that's the like from 16 candles and breakfast club to that like dear god my man you really ate your pro like your wheaties and bulked the fuck up like holy yeah. shit you big boy <laughs> but, Honey. yeah um Oh, we didn't. Did we mention how this is like Frankenstein and Beauty and the Beast all in okay. one? How it is like a Frankenstein movie? I wanted to bring that up. I like totally far- meant to bring that up earlier. How this is Frankenstein, yeah, but not. This is definitely basically. like Tim Burton's fascination with '30s uh, Universal monster movies because this. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the the entire plot. Like, if you take the the main plot points, it is literally Frankenstein. You know, man creates being. Being gets out in the world, doesn't understand how the world operates, hurts someone, ends up being chased by the townspeople back up to his castle with with pitchforks here. It's a bunch of pastel colored women that chase him up the hill. But like it is literally the mate, the the meta story of, of Frankenstein played out here. And I think that's it's it's such a fascinating kind of uh, modernization of that story, I would say. Well said. I, I definitely agree. And like. It, again, it has like a like a like a not cuter, but like a brighter aesthetic. So it doesn't mm-hmm. feel as Frankenstein, but it has it does have those story beats. And I also thought Beauty and the Beast because I love that the animated movie growing up. But like when he kills the be- like it's like the Gaston and Beast standoff. Mm-hmm. Of like again, the threat to heteronormativity and like the pinnacle of toxic masculinity, duking it out in a giant castle, and one of them gets thrown out of a window or like thrown off of a roof. I was like Beauty and the Beast, and it's 
very interesting how it has those gothic aspects to it. And again, you got Vincent Price in it. I know he's not universal, but he's like, you know, he's a horror legend. Oh, and he's yeah. a lot of that stuff. So you have him in it as the scientist. And it's like, oh, okay. I Now that I have more horror knowledge as an adult and I watch more movies, I see how this is basically a universal monster movie, but with more colors. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Before we wrap up. Thomas, does this movie still scare you as an adult? Does it still bring no. you existential dread? <laughs> no, it, it gives me a lot of like comfort because, you know, similar to you, like I kind of grew up uh, always being bullied around and like, you know, I, I didn't really have that many friends growing up. And so Same. like I look at this as a very cathartic, uh, like uh, sort of just just emotionally, emotional roller coaster type of story. So, I, you know, I... I get a lot of comfort from it just because it's it's just a great story to tell from somebody else's perspective that isn't so uh, stereotypical. And, you know, for that reason, I think it's just it's one that most, you know, will and, and, and or would enjoy, you know, if they haven't seen it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up and give this our rating out of five. Terry, how many perfectly manicured poodles <laughs> out of five do you give Edward Scissorhands? You know, uh, rewatching this and then having this conversation, I think this is a rare kind of almost perfect movie. Um, like it's one that I, I wouldn't change a thing. And I almost, for a lot of times when I was watching this film that for this podcast, I actually just put my, my laptop that I was taking notes on down because I was just so enraptured with what was happening on screen. I think, uh, so I, I think for me, I honestly think this is five, uh, what is it? Five perfectly, perfectly manicured, manicured poodles with five perfectly coiffed, uh, you know, housewife hairdos. Like, I, I think this movie is perfect. I, I can't give it anything less than five. What about you, Mary Beth? Oh, it's hard because I the emotional impact just, like, kicks me in the teeth and it makes me not want to watch the movie. And, like, mm -hmm. that's personal. That's not anything on the movie, but, like, I was watching it and I, like, kept wincing. And, I, again, like, it's hard to explain why it makes me feel this way. But I think if a movie that this beautiful is able to elicit that reaction. I think it needs to get five perfectly manicured poodles out of five. Like I think the way the effect has had on me for so long, I think, mm -hmm. you know, Tim Burton with all of his problems and weird politics, you know, made something gorgeous with this movie. So it's five. Uh, Thomas, mm -hmm. you have the final word. Yeah. How many perfectly manicured poodles out of five do you give Edward Scissorhands? I would get, I mean, I'll give it five perfect manicured poodles for sure, because <laughs> like, um, you know, I, I, I'm pretty active on Letterboxd, which is like, you know, it's kind of like a, it, it's just like a, a movie database app. Um, and you know, I've logged like 8,000 movies on there, but I keep track of like my top 100 favorite films. And this is definitely up there on my top 100, uh, favorites of all time. So yeah, I'll give it five, five right. out of five. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us to talk about Edward Scissorhands, because, uh, again, this is, I think, maybe the second time I've seen it, and it, it's, it was an experience to revisit. So I appreciate that. Where can our listeners find you? And what do you have coming up that you can plug or share? What's going on in your life? Sweet. Well, first, yes, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun uh, diving down the Edward Scissorhands rabbit hole <laughs> with y'all. Um, you can find me on Letterboxd. Uh, at the movie archive. I also have an Instagram at the movie archive where 
I basically collect and share my hard copy media collection, um, action figures, the whole, like, kind of like everything just in, around movies. And then um, besides that, I, you know, my website, thomas-burke.com, you can uh, find a lot of my work and keep up to date with kind of what's what's new or what's what's coming up. And besides that, I'm working on a few developments at the moment, besides like a couple that are under wraps. Right now, um, I, I'm set to co-direct a found footage sequel to a, a rather uh, popular uh, horror film that came out a couple of years ago. So we're going to center that around like social media, and that'll be um, kind of something bigger that that I'm working on soon. And I'm, I'm also really excited about it. We're going to be working with a couple other uh, directors in the found footage industry. That's cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm editing a found footage feature right now called Ghost of Hiroshima that I just, I think is, you know, it's one of my favorite uh, editing jobs I've had to date. It's just like, I, I got this raw footage in and it just scared the crap out of me. And oh. usually, you know, you need kind of need a little bit of like sound effects or like color stuff added to things before you, your movie starts looking spooky. But man, this was just a really successful horror film. I'm really excited to kind of be attached to it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy and stoked for that to come out. And then I just acted with Isaac Rodriguez and Mr. Creep. That'll be coming out soon. And uh, and a couple other found footage movies. But just, you know, just... You're just a busy man. Yeah, still diving in that found footage rabbit hole for sure. And I, I do have some big hopes for other stories that I want to tell that aren't found footage. Like, we were just talking a lot about just, to, you know, fish out of water characters. And one thing I've been doing is researching... Um, is researching rather heavily into Mormon fundamentalism because I think there's an untold story there. And so I've been spending about four to five years researching the religion and just that kind of private sect of, uh, of Mormon Latter-day Saints. Wow. The, like the fundamentalist. Have you watched Keep Sweet on Netflix yet? I've No, no I haven't watched it yet. I, that one, the one that just came out, right? Oh, you need to watch it if you're researching fundamentalist LDS. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. It's- I've been I've been researching it for like since 2013. So I've been really wow. kind of just going knee deep. I, I acted in a what really got me into this is I got cast in a theater production where we were we were uh, we were doing a story uh, pertaining to Mormon fundamentalism. And so I just that got me in like being cast as one of the leads on that um, production really got me just researching so much into the religion and the culture that it just inspired me afterwards to like um, just to get into this. It got me back into screenwriting. It really kind of reinforced my uh, like the kinds of stories that I think, you know, deserve to be told or or need to be told. So it's something I'm really excited about, but it's also something I'm just going to kind of handle really cautiously because it's, it, it pertains to real sensitive subject matter. So like, I knew that if I ever wanted to make a film about it, that I would need to like know everything about it first. So I kind of feel like I may be coming on the other side of that research now. And hopefully one day we'll kind of tell my story about it. Hell yeah. Cool. Hell yeah. Well, listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Edward Scissorhands? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm a Gaily Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. Oh, won't somebody 
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.